This episode's guest is Keir Wynnum Flat from the Strength Coach Network and Rugby Strength Coach. On this episode, Keir and I discuss Keir's background. I ask Keir, does he still have an ambition to work in the NFL? I ask Keir, what lessons has he learned from all his world travel? I ask Keir why he established the Strength Coach Network and what his ambitions for it are going into the future. I ask Keir how fatherhood has changed him. I ask Keir about his approach to being a parent. Keir gives us his top and current reading recommendations. And finally, I ask Keir if he could invite five people to dinner, dead or alive, who'd he invite and why? Also, guys, regarding the Strength Coach Network for the entire month of September 2021, just for those of you who listen to this episode beyond September 2021, Kier is offering $50 off the annual membership fee to the Strength Coach Network website. Um, the code that you will want to apply is SPRINT. So the link for that is in the show notes. And that is running for the entire month of September. So this podcast will be going out on the 20th of September. So you'll have 10 days from the 20th of September, 2021, until the end of September, 2021, to use that code. So again, the code is SPRINT. Uh, Annual membership is $250 for Strength Coach Network. So you will get it for $200 if you sign up using that code. And with all that said, this was a great conversation with Keir, and I hope you guys really, really enjoy it. Okay, Keir, it is, it's been too long. It has been, yeah. We said the other day, it's been at least three or four years. Yeah, I I think, as I said just before we hopped on, I think the last thing we communicated, like whether it was WhatsApp or email, I I still think you were in Japan at the time. Mm. And I think one of the last times we spoke, I actually think for some reason you were in the UK the last time we spoke or video. I think you were back visiting your family. Um, yeah, possibly. I went back in 19, just after my baby was born. Could have been, yeah. So. Yeah. Listen, like uh, everyone who listens to my podcast, I would highly doubt there's anyone listening to this right now who doesn't know who you are. But as I said to you again before we hopped on, um, you've given your background on a lot of previous podcasts, but it probably is good for the context of this conversation to still give us your background because I just kind of want you to lay out where you're going with the Strength Coach Network, you know, why you formulated it, um, you know, your whole thoughts again on the coaching profession. You can just lay yeah. all that out first. So listen, the, the floor is yours and I'll just ask questions as they organically pop up. Yeah. So, yeah, terrible athlete, wannabe, uh, wannabe athlete age of 15 looked in the mirror you know unathletic slow white <laughs> not brave not skillful not big all that kind of stuff and then I thought all right you know I'm going to be a coach brief detour to start a psychology degree because it was more academic and honorable did not work out and I thought right okay I'm going to go into coaching got my first degree two years of not even being able to do an internship because I was that bad started in pro rugby at wasps and uh, the next eight years or so was spent in pro rugby. So I spent two and a half years at Wasps, went from intern to assistant to head of academy, which you said, I, I say I threw my toys out the pram. I did. And when I knew that I wanted to move to Australia with my ex, I did a stint at Rotherham with Alex Codling because the, the question mark had been raised about me when I interviewed for adult teams that I didn't have adult experience. So I took a pay cut, went down a level, moved to Rotherham of all places um, and did a stint there, moved to Australia while I was working to build relationships, get a foot in the front door, visit teams and so on there. I uh, filled in for one of the exos contractors that had to go home with the Argentinian team. So I, I, you know, had a previous relationship with them, cultivated that over a couple of years and ended up being there for three months. That led to Sydney Roosters suddenly paying attention to me. And um, I went in as head of the academy. So the under 20s, 16s, 18s. And within two weeks, I became the head strength coach for the first team, which at the time looks like you're being given your dream with a big bow in it. And 
you know, looking back, it was a poison chalice and I resigned after six months because it was that bad. Um, but through dumb luck, I became my own replacement for Argentina because Chris Toombs, who they'd hired to replace me, dropped out to go work in Seattle. So the, the timing lined up perfectly that when I resigned, I ended up being my own replacement. And I did um, the next two, two and a bit years with the Pumas. In, um, we, we finished at the World Cup, beat some team in the quarterfinal I can't remember the name of. Um, and then I, I initially intended to stay on. So we, that whole World Cup year, we'd been in you know, negotiations about me being the performance director. So I oversee basically all the teams because they knew they were going to join Super Rugby and all that stuff. And it, you know, we'd arrived at a number that was not a good number at all, but because I was so emotionally, you know, invested at that stage and the way the economy works out there, I, you know, I thought, right, I can make it work. <clears throat> but they wanted to terminate their deal with Exos. Exos had a non-compete. So I was literally out of the job. Like my reward for that campaign was to have no job. So I'm like sat there in the UK. Cotter's got back to me, asked me to sign for Ealing because they were about to make a big push in the championship. And I, I said what I thought was an outrageous number to discourage him. And he's like, yep, done. So I was like, fuck it. All right, then. So I actually, I'd signed for Ealing. And... Um, Previously, like the last August, I was getting tapped up by an agent to see if I wanted to go out to Japan in the top league. And obviously, if you work in rugby, you know about the money over there. So I was like, hell yeah. And then once I'd signed this deal with Ealing, it started to materialize like, hey, like this team in Japan wants you. So I was I was on vacation in Mexico. Look how American I am. I was on holiday in Mexico. <clears throat> and um, yeah, so let me think. On the Wednesday, they said, yeah, they, they want you. They want you in Tokyo. They want you there to start on Monday. So I flew home on Thursday. I was doing this dumb challenge as I read Alex Viada's book around then. I was like, right, I'm going to squat a personal best and run a marathon on the same day. So I get back on Thursday. I'm like, fuck, the only day I can do it is Friday. So I got off the plane, went to bed, woke up, squatted a PR, ran a marathon. The next day I was at Heathrow and then... I started in Tokyo on a Monday. That was the next two years of my career. And I actually had a conversation last night where <clears throat> I said the, the natural ending point of my time in rugby should have been the end of the 2015 World Cup. Because if you look at, you know, the level of achievement that I got to be a tiny part of, most people never get to that level. And that's a great ending point. You don't want to be, to me, certainly, you don't want to be chasing it. You know, if I'd have stayed on and gone to the 2019 World Cup, all of a sudden you're not even getting out of the group stages. That must be like emotionally quite tough to handle if you've gone from that to that. And it's very, very draining. Like that lifestyle, partly because of how I am, because I was so invested personally, I, you know, I, I, I'll take the highs and the lows very, very personally. So I've been like this for like almost 10 years, lots of, um, lots of sacrifices to get to that point. So the, the enthusiasm was starting to run out a little bit there, <clears throat> but Japanese money. So Japan, it, it served a purpose. Like they paid me a lot of money to go out there and, what I said to Ealing when I asked for release, because I asked for release, I was like, this is going to be a life-changing amount of money. So unless you can match it, I'm going to ask you to release me. It was like triple. They said, no, nah, we're not going to match it. So I said, all right, can I be released my contract? And they actually graciously said yes, because I, I kind of, between the lines said to them, I said, if you say no to me and you make me serve this contract, good luck if you think you're going to get my best effort. That's what I said. So I did two years there. And obviously by the, you know, midway through that Japanese contract, it's, it is a tough, tough environment to work in if you give a fuck. And I remember saying to my agent, do not renegotiate this deal. I'm done. And I'd already started putting things in place to move to the States. And I'm sure they would have fired me anyway, if, if not like, because I'm friggin' stubborn and I was not going to give them what they wanted. So yeah, January 18 came over and, um, Started at University of Richmond, thanks to Jay DeMeo, and started again completely at the bottom, 14 grand a year, most junior position, 
and I, I actually liked it at the time because there was no meetings, no, you know, um, having to answer for stuff that you don't have any authority over. But then, yeah, my uh, my ex misses I immediately got her pregnant, and she was in Tokyo, and I didn't have health insurance. So then that was like started the the push to like, right, I need to start advancing this career in the states. You mentioned Eric off air. I presented at TFC in Chicago in May, I think it was April or May, and he saw that presentation. I presented again at CVASPs in June or July, and he's like, right, they're building this project, and he's like, right, I want this guy to come in and effectively be like his right-hand man, which I did. I went in the end of August of 18, and by, I think it was like the week after my son was born, I was the head strength coach for football, director of athletic performance, so... I think why he wanted to hire me is what he had had a couple of cracks at at Florida State, Kentucky, the Texans. I had done my best impression of him in Argentina with the time and resources that we had. So we shared a lot of similarities. And I feel like he would say this, you know, if you, if you asked him, we have very complementary skill sets in that he is, if you need somebody to put on the polo shirt and build the relationships and ask for money and ask for favors to, to work on the big picture. Absolutely. That's him. And then I'm a lot more uh, in the trenches, problem solve in front of the athletes, all that kind of stuff. So that was a very, very complimentary skill set that we had together. And of course the, I remember at the start of the pandemic, I said, there's going to be a lot of coaches that when they come down to the breakfast table on Monday in lockdown, and spend time with their family, they're going to realize they don't want to be coaches and not realizing that I was going to be one of them. Now, my, uh, I, my son was not there, so I'm a single parent. But it just got to a point where I spent, how long have I been ahead? Five years telling my interns, pay, personal life, career progression, sense of purpose. If you have all four, stay until you die. If you have three, only leave for four. If you have two, actively be looking. And if you have one, slap yourself. So I'm getting to the point like last, almost a year, last August, September, do I need the money? No, I don't. I can make, I can easily make more money working for myself. If you work it out on an hourly basis, how's my personal life? Well, single parent, haven't seen my son in almost a year. Thanks to the pandemic. All my friends are at my job and they're leaving. Um, how's my career progression? Who's going to get me to the NFL? It's going to be me. The question mark of can I work with a college football team has been answered. Yes, I can. And the jump from FCS strength coach to NFL strength coach is probably as rare as the jump from FCS player to NFL player. And then I thought sense of purpose, Eric left, Scott left, and the pretenses that I was brought under to do this job, the project that we talked about has just turned out to be bullshit. So I was like, all right, at best, one out of four, slap myself, time to leave. And that's what I've been doing for a year. And just, um, I know previously NFL was an ambition. Is that on the back burner now? Maybe. I mean, again, you know, I've had these conversations with Eric like so often because that was obviously his ambition to go back. He got fired very, very unfairly from the Texans. To the point where they they had a regime change. They made a point of coming to him and saying, hey, your job is safe. You don't need to worry. And he's like, oh. and then a month later, they fired him. Um, he, he felt that there was unfinished business and he wanted to go back. And, you know, I was, I was quite open with him strategically. Like, this is where I want to work and I'm going with you. And I'm, I'm going to do a sufficiently good job that you want to take me with you. And that was the mentality that we he and I had had going into the pandemic and we talked about that but really you you realize that the, the problems never change it's just in a nicer office with a different logo on your chest and maybe a different bank balance and when you work out the numbers you have to eat shit for so long to get the big payday and then the big payday is one or two or three years tops it's very very rare that you're a buddy morris you know, where you, you got a job for life and he's had to work to that point. So when you work out the average income over that time, it's like, actually, it's not that worth it, worth it. 
And then it, it just got to the point where, why, why am I doing this? And in reality, if you've been in the position where you've worked at different levels, internally, you know that the, you maybe get access to more resources, but on an intellectual level, there's no more satisfaction from improving an elite level athlete as opposed to youth athletes, as opposed to whatever. Really, it's about the ego fluff of look who I work with and what other people think about you. And I, as I said to my assistant, Scott, it's like behind closed doors, we talk shit all day long about this guy's a retard, this guy's a retard, this guy's a retard. So why do I care what they think about me? And yeah, man, it's just what the bigger the organization that you deal with, the more censorship you have to deal with about what it is that you can say and do and think. And I think I've just got to that age now where you can't pay me enough to do that. So if, it, if it's going to happen, it will happen on my terms. Or if it's not going to happen, cool. Yeah, there's, there's a lot there you've just touched on that really resonates with me in terms of, like, I, I don't know if you've listened to, I know you, you probably, well, I don't know, but over the years, my own podcast, so I was going to say, I don't know if you've listened to some of these podcasts and you may have heard me say this because I have said it a number of times in with a number of people through um, various conversations in that, like, the, the pattern that I constantly see or have seen over the last number of years with peers and friends of mine who are in professional sports with big organizations is that you know they they they're young and they're go-getters and like they're like yeah i want i want to work with pro athletes and making a longer story short here they get into it like they intern they become an assistant they may become a head strength coach may even be a head of performance but the consistent pattern i was seeing was that they're they're meaning their sense of meaning their purpose their love for their vocation just seemed to like just be beat the fuck out of them yeah over over a number of years so like again this is very general but this is how i all saw it like or this is the way i I would explain it's like year one they're there they're enthusiastic and they're like i'm gonna you know i'm gonna be the man like you know i mean i'm gonna dedicate i'm gonna be there for everyone i'm gonna be like you can call me anytime you want 24 7 and then after year one they're kind of like ooh. There was a lot there that I didn't realize yeah. that was involved, like the politics and there are people that really don't give a shit about SNC and that like I'm actually very low on the totem pole here and what really matters is the head coach and the sport coaches. Then they're like, okay, year two, I, I've grown a bit. I understand there's more political game here and they're doing a year two and they're like, oh, I still haven't really made any impact here and it really is about politics and actually now the people I'm working with, they're kind of competing against one another about who's in the facility earlier and who stayed longer and who's got bigger balls. And it just becomes this game of one upsmanship. This is the, this is where, and the game of one upsmanship is where like, no one says this like directly, but you know that they're saying it like in a passive aggressive manner. Like what time did you get to the facility today? 4am? Huh? I slept here last night. And you know why? It's because it's, it's a culture in which nobody ever takes the time to define what it is you do and to measure the impact with how you do it. And so you end up competing on the things that have nothing to do with that. That's America. <laughs> who, yeah. who came, who came in earlier? Who gives a fuck? <laughs> who, who gives a fuck? And yeah. because it's funny too, because again, I, I do have a number of friends in, in professional who work with very high or, or professional organizations. And they often like, say to me over text from a phone call oh yeah it's, it's busy now 10 12 hour days and like i all, and i say this directly to him i was like how inefficient are you guys that you need to be there for 12 hours a day like that yeah. just screams inefficient that doesn't scream hard work to me that that screams to me you're, you're doing something so fucked up that you have to like fix things over and over again like it's not an efficient system yeah but the, the just to, to wrap up on what, on what i was saying there was that so like did the coaches in like year two or year three and they're getting more burnt out with each year. And then eventually one day they're sitting on the jacks in work. And then the thought finally goes into their head where they're finally in a moment of silence where they're honest and they say, I don't want to be here anymore. Yeah. And then it's like, Oh my God, did I just say that? And then the other voice in their head goes, you ungrateful son of a bitch. All you ever wanted, all you ever said was, I wanted to work in pro sports and you have it. And now you're telling me you don't want it. You're so ungrateful. So they had this like internal conflict going on. And it's just like they've it's guilt. And now they've also 
invested so much of their time, their life resources, and also now their identities with this organization that they're too afraid to step away. Because yeah. then there's the money, as you've already said. And it's just also too, it's gotten to a point of almost no return. Their relationships with their family is so bad. Yeah. They're on they're on the point of divorce. Their kids don't even know who their father is anymore. And also, I don't want to be sexier. So this could be a female strength coach of their mother. It's yeah. you know there's just as many females in the field now. Well, there isn't just many, but there is more females in prominent positions. Um, and it, it's just kind of like it becomes this perpetual cycle. They stay in the facility because of the game of one-upsmanship, and they also stay in the facility because it's an avoidance behavior. Sometimes they don't just don't want to go home. They don't oh, like. Yeah. They, they they were finished at they they were finished at like two or three p.m. But they just stayed, you know, yeah. till six or seven. And mm-hmm. sometimes that is the game of one-upsmanship again, just to say, oh, I stayed in the facility for twelve hours, while you only stayed for yeah. eleven hours and forty-five minutes. But sometimes it's the avoidance, like I don't want to actually go home because, because yeah. you know, my partner is always like, well, like you said, you pick up the kids, and where were you yesterday, and you missed the play. So that was a constant pattern I've seen over and over again, and that's what was kind of pushing me away from getting into pro sports because I, I often have the thing in my head like you know should I go for pro sports should I just do my own you thing ask like, yourself what if like you want to measure yourself exactly and and, yeah. and the, the only answer that ever came back to me and and this and just so I'm clear before I before I give this this is this is this this does not mean that this answer is wrong but the only answer I could come up with to to satisfy why do I want to be in pro sport was purely ego it was just to turn around and say I worked with social shows so people go oh yeah, my yeah. god but like in my head, like I knew like th- these people like think that the grass is rosy or greener on or, so grass is rosier, that the grass is greener on the other side. But I already knew in the back of my head like, no, no, you don't get it. Like pro sport actually is fucking toxic, yeah. toxic in most. Well, you know, it's like one of those uh, one of those quotes. It's like whoever, whoever can, whoever controls what it is that you can say owns you. And in a similar way, whoever's opinion of you influences your decision making also occupies real estate in your head really you should not you know you should not give a fuck about what anyone thinks about you unless they know you personally and you're you know you're in you're they're in that inner circle those are the because i have made the mistake of what what do people in the industry think about me when there are people in the inner circle that i haven't seen in you know months or they're not happy with me for xyz when in reality it's got to flip it where you keep those 10 people as tight as you can and then fuck the rest and just wrapping up my whole thoughts around our opening discussion here was that what finally also comes into my head is that like you know so it's kind of like do i want to get into pro sport and you know it's the whole you know big massive organization to be part of that and it's again it's the ego thing of like the, the look in people's eyes oh my god you're such a judge but then there's the other part where you kind of touched on this where you flip around and go why can't i just build something that i own and then yeah. do you know who else comes into my head? A Chris Corfus, a Tony Holler, a Dan Victor. Because I remember yeah. speaking to Dan one time. I was like, what? Guys. Yeah, and I, but I remember speaking to Dan one time about this. Like, and Dan was like, why would I ever go to pro sport? He's like, I get to run everything here. I own it all. Like, because he works in high school. And like, I've worked too in Gaelic Games Clubs where like I have the full run of the show. And I'm like, why would I want to swap this? Okay, like the money isn't as good, but the fulfillment and the joy as like, I am like, I am the, the like there's no one above me there's no one below me it's me you know what I mean and I've often thought to as well that when I go back into coaching now because I've kind of I kind of took a little bit of sabbatical I just focus on my studies and like anyone listen I got burnt out and I was like it's right now I'm not getting fulfillment from it I'm taking a step back but I I like I know that the, the flame will rekindle but when I go back like I just want to take a group of young men under 14 all the way to like 18 years of age and just like life through sports is what I want to give them. Do you know what I mean? And I and I and I want to be the head coach. Like I'm going to do the sports. Like I'm not going back. It'll be a James Smith thing, you know. I'll be the engineer of all. Like I won't be like just an SNC. It'll be I want to be the head coach overseeing all of it. Because again, my background is Gaelic games. So I know the technical and tactical aspects. And then obviously my background in SNC. And then, you know, I suppose I'm not a psychologist, but that's an area too that it's the growth true sports that I want to give these young men. Yeah. And obviously I'd like to see that for young ladies too. I don't want to be just towards the men, but that's where I see myself kind of facilitating the growth of young men through sport. Like, um, if you have any thoughts on that, love to hear it. Um, but the next question I just want to ask here is very interested. You've done so much travel and you spent a lot of time on your own. Like, mm-hmm. 
like you know Japan times with Argentina like I know you were around players and athletes but that's I'm assuming you lived a lot on your own too like how like how did you find that because I'm someone who lives on their own and can spend a lot of time on my own and um just like you know mental health wise being away from family being away from friends being away from familiar I suppose culture and surroundings like like what I suppose my overarching question is what lessons have you learned from all that world travel and like what was that whole experience like? I mean, did you have any times where like, you know, I really miss home, I miss friends. Like how did the whole ride go, the, the whole journey? I mean, to, to sum it up in one uh, answer, not well. Um, I've never really missed home. Um, one, one thing, I was talking to my sister about this because obviously we, I live in America. She lives in Australia. We both made a concerted effort to leave. One thing that you learn uh, when you're English growing up is like, oh, we used to rule the world. We used to rule the world. And, you know, rightly or wrongly, they, they, did, they did control of the world. And, um, but then you you grow up in the shadow of that like oh the british empire was this now it's this england's influence in the world and even in my lifetime england's influence in the world has diminished because of brexit because of the global financial crisis just just things like that you can and you know my hometown northampton again it's nostalgia but when i was a teenager you never saw homeless people in Northampton in, in large numbers. And I went back two years ago, we set off there, I think, or yeah, there, there was like settlements of tents of like homeless people. And you just see the trajectory of like this and it's, it's a small town and I, I couldn't wait to leave. I couldn't wait to leave. So it, I didn't leave until I was 24 to go to London, but it was always my, well, I went to university, but it was always my intent to get out and for, for whatever reason, I always felt like being in this country was in my future. Even when I went to Australia, it was like, I'm going to end up in America. This is just a stop. And that was probably not good for my relationship. Um, but no, I, I always wanted to be over here. Uh, and this is the thing about another fact, another thing that they don't tell you about these high level jobs is you are going to have to spend a lot of time by yourself isolated and when you're in relationships you'll you'll say you know I, I can tell you like when I when I took back the job with Argentina after I quit the Roosters so best rugby league club in the world on paper an absolute dream job you get to live and work near Bondi Beach 15 minutes from home big big pay bump I think my pay in a year I'll tell you, they offered me 70 grand on day one and I accepted because I had 65 in my head. The day that I became the head strength coach, they gave me a 20 grand bump. With, I didn't even have to ask. They said, oh, we're going to bump you up 20 grand. Is that cool? And I was like, yep. So I'm making 90 grand as a 28-year-old, which is not terrible. And, you know, I was absolutely miserable. And because it had gone so badly and because I felt like people were looking at me you know, I had like a profile or whatever. I was ashamed to tell people that I'd quit the job and that I didn't have a job. So I quit. And then Exos offered me the chance to go back to Argentina. They said, oh, you know, you're going to have to be on the road for 20 whatever weeks this year. I said, yes. Didn't even speak to my girlfriend. Spoke to her. I said, oh, I spoke to Exos today. And she just heard that her first words were, when are you leaving? So she knew what was up. And that, that pattern of, um, of work and living is just not conducive to, to family life. And if you at the time gave me the choice and said, oh, at the, at the end of this, you're going to get to go to the Rugby World Cup. You're going to work with these athletes, these athletes, these athletes. Um, but you're going to have to give up your life in Australia and your relationship and so on. I'd probably say, oh, I'm going to miss her. <laughs> For real. Like I've, I've kind of said to people, like I would step over you and tread on your face just to be sure if I had to win. So it's tough. And when you tell a significant other, I, you know, this week I'm in, or, you know, 
this week, Buenos Aires, next week, fly to Heathrow. Next week, I'm in Browns in the Algarve, back to, um, back to London, you know, all this kind of travel. How they imagine it in their head is you're like popping champagne corks, hanging out with the boys, playing cards, having a laugh. But in reality, it's like you spend your life on a plane, on a bus, in a hotel room by yourself. It's tough. It's a tough lifestyle. And it's just the more you do it, the, the sense of satisfaction and the high that you get from the wins diminishes and the hardship associated with that lifestyle does not. So the balance gets shifted. So this all leads us to where you are right now um, and the formulation of the Strength Coach Network. So what are your aspirations for the Strength Coach Network? I half jokingly say that I want the UKSCA to be embarrassed to exist. But if you read a book called uh, Sovereign Individual, it's this like, I think I got the book from Farnham Street blog. So Shane Parrish. It was a book that was written weirdly 20 years ago. You know who Jacob Rees-Mogg is, the conservative politician? He is like the, the chief Brexiteer went to Eton supposedly when he, he uh, was um, canvassing to become an MP. He had his nanny drive the Rolls Royce. Right? He's, he sounds like a caricature. His dad wrote a book over 20 years ago, essentially about libertarianism and mega political change. And it's basically the role of how technology um, and innovation shapes political change. And political change is all about violence. So the higher the cost of violence, the less people are likely to use it. And the lower the cost of violence, the more likely people are to use it. And whoever commits the most amount of violence creates the most amount of change. Anyway, one of the things that they talk about in that book is monopoly. Monopolies only serve those who own them. So for example, if you have a business monopoly, that's great for you. It's shit for the customer because you can charge them whatever. You have no incentive from the market to innovate and so on. And again, if you have a monopoly on violence, you can do violence to others. They can't do it to you. Guess who's going to win every argument? You are, right? So with that said, who has a monopoly on information and education within strength and conditioning within the UK and Ireland? The UKSCA. They have no incentive from the market right now to innovate their accreditation process because they are the only game in town. And I've been having these conversations for at least as long as I was trying to coach about this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. And people within the UKSCA who have been on their board, who have been assessors, will say to me in private, Kier, you're absolutely right. It needs to change. Okay, why is it not changing? because they have a monopoly, they have no need to. Can you imagine in the private sector, if you and I were competing with one another, I admitted in private that I had flaws associated with my product or service, and then I did nothing to innovate on them for 15 years. I would deservedly go out of business, right? So that's why I think there is a need for change within strength and conditioning education between what the elite environment demands, what universities prepare students to be able to do and what the accrediting bodies say constitutes a safe and effective practitioner. And it's too watered down right now. There's, there's, there's too much wiggle room. Oh, we're not saying everyone wants to work in elite sport. Okay, then let's create a separate accreditation for those that want to work in elite sport. Oh, well, it's not our job to tell the universities what to put in their courses and so on. Okay, well, you can, you can still talk to them. You can still talk to the pro sports teams. And I've said it publicly and been called a money grabber by uh, Rich Clark. There is an inherent uh, conflict of interest by those that act as a creditor and educator at the same time. So that the legal definition of a, a conflict of interest is when there is the appearance of two different interests, not I'm actively serving both, the appearance or the opportunity of. So you need to make sure that you only have one interest that you serve. So who do accreditors serve? They serve 
the end consumer of the product or service by erecting barriers to entry. So if I, uh, if I set the exam to be a stockbroker, I am protecting the end consumer from predatory lenders or products and services, right? I'm not serving stockbrokers. I'm actually making it harder for them by saying, you, 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 you can't be a stockbroker, you're good enough, okay? When I'm the educator, I serve the people trying to pass the exams. So if I can teach you how to pass your series seven stockbroker exam, that's good. If you pass the exam, you're going to tell your friends, more people come to my business, my business grows. So I actively want as many people as possible to pass that exam. If I'm the accreditor, I actually, within reason, want people, fewer people to pass that exam because it, it delivers a high level of service to the end consumer. It makes the qualification more attractive and so on. So if I act as a creditor and educator, I serve two different interests. I serve the end consumer and I serve the coach. So Nassim Taleb, align, alignment of interests. If I'm the UKSCA and you pass the UKSCA exam, well, that's good for me because you just made, so because you're going to tell your friends and I get more money for education. If you fail the exam, it's also good for me because you just made the UKSCA a more valuable qualification and we've just delivered a high level of service to uh, the end consumer, which is athletes. So if when you do well, I do well. And if when you do bad, I do well, is that aligned interests? And that's why we're only in education. We're going to fill those gaps. We're going to actively talk to professional sports teams and colleges to see what gaps are there to be filled. And then we're going to fill them and then work backwards from what it is the elite environment demands. And our, our market is pretty much the big four in North America and Europe. I, um, I can't remember which podcast it was, but the guys who were interviewing you, they proposed, I think it was two guys interviewing you, but anyway, you were on a podcast and when you gave this explanation about um, some of the issues you have with UKSCA, they said, well, do you not see the UKSCA as like just like the driving test? So the, what DVLA, was- the DVLA doesn't sell driving lessons. Hmm. If you, so, if if you are, you're you know you're safe to coach. You're not safe to coach. the 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 reply comes from the UKCA. Well, you know, people are free to write education to pass the UKCA exam. It's a free market, and so on. Guess who writes the UKCA exam? So you're able to reverse engineer and say, oh, you know, I know what's on the exam. Come take my education course. That's not the free market. And again, there is that um, conflict of interest. So my reply would be, you can be in the driving test business. You can be in the driving lesson business. But to do both, there's a conflict of interest. And I cannot think of other more established um industries or professional pathways where you control both sides of the market. And the, the analogy that I used to, to Rich Clark was you are cranking up the thermostat in the nightclub and then selling bottles of water. Oh, look how hard the UKSCA is. Do you want to pass the, the course? So do you want to pass the, the exam? Take this course. Yeah, exactly. No, that, that 100% makes sense. And would you have a similar uh, gripe then with other organizations like the NSCA and CSCS? I'm just wondering. So, with, with the with the strength coach network, w- would you go down the pathway of an accreditation in the future? No. Just you're going to stick purely towards education and professional development. I, if whoever does, if it has to be completely third party and ring fenced. And even if you did that, there would be the appearance of a conflict of interest. So if I'm going to complain about it, I have to be about it. I can't, I can't double dip. And I am inherently skeptical of 
the rubber stamp like, oh, you're a coach. It's not, it's not my place to tell you you're a coach, you're not a coach. I think it's way more complicated than that. And I'm definitely going to be on the side of education because is there a, is there a place for people to educate coaches to pass exams? For sure. I probably derive more satisfaction and purpose from you feeling the impact of your membership to the site in how much money you earn, how much free time you have, what results you get with your athletes on the floor, all those processes and systems you're able to develop in your own, in your own job. So it's less uh, tangible, but more impactful to me. So I, I remember having this discussion too with, with James when I proposed a question to him about if he was given the resources yeah. um, that he felt he needed to basically design like the most optimal degree, if you like, or master's or whatever program yeah. for physical preparation coaches or, you know, whatever sports engineers, he came back and he said, basically it should look very like medical school or law school in that there is no physios. There is no SNC. There is no sports scientist. There is no sports nutritionist. There is no sports psychologist in the first like one to three years or five years. It's like, you all go to medical school, like med- like yeah. the way doctors do. And sure, then, yeah. and then after your five years of medical training, then you can go off and branch off into spe- into. And it should be to you know to agree with him it should be like those fields because what you see in those fields is although there's exams it's still very much an apprenticeship model which is you're going to stick yourself to my hip and watch how i work and i'm going to give you tasks every single day in the field that uh record um that tally up with the level of knowledge and skill that you have and as you grow the tasks grow with them so i i used to live with dentists at university they were doing stuff on day one and you'll have people in America, like big, big colleges that you would have heard of. I had a female coach interview with me. She had two degrees. She had two internships. And she was, they made up this bullshit name for it at this big school. And I was like, okay, uh, which, which teams do you program for? And she's like, none. Year six, year seven, not programming. And I want you to come in and handle four sports without me holding your hand. Yeah, that, that's a, that's a serious issue. I I think uh, I I actually like when James proposed that. Like I like to me and still right now I fully agree that model to me makes most sense. That's not to say obviously maybe there's things within the medical school model that could improve, but the model yeah. itself makes sense. I I'd say there's a few uh, like the the like with medicine it's 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 even in the grand evolution of humans it's still a very yeah. a field in its infancy i suppose but i suppose that medicine just has more agreed upon general principles and also its language and its semantics whereas it would be very hard right now to take i'm just gonna i'm just gonna say strength and condition i know like people also yeah, physical physical, physical, or whatever the fuck you want to call it um it'd be very difficult to take strength and condition right now and you know have a generalized taxonomy for everything within that field because so many coaches have such different languages you know what i mean it's not like engineering where it's like it doesn't matter if you're a portuguese person who's an engineer or someone from japan or england or america because you all basically speak to mathematics which is a universal language and then medicine even though it, it does use spoken language you know a lot of medicine derives from latin and greek so a lot of it is actually kind of very more systematized so what i'm saying is the medical model that works very well right now and it should and would work very well if if you were to say right everyone who wants to be involved in sports preparation be it an snc or a sports scientist or a nutritionist or a physio we should follow the medical model i think the initial hurdle would be trying to agree upon no these are this is the taxonomy these are the categories because well, it's, it's also it's a financial hurdle because yeah. that that matter of education is so much more intensive and less scalable because if you if you run an apprenticeship model and all of a sudden you want to double your enrollment you probably need to double the number of mentors that you have for people coming on that course because there's just a, a natural human limit to how many people that you can mentor, educate, have as apprentices. If you have a lecturer at the front of a lecture hall who's never coached at the elite level, which is typically the case, St. Mary's, um, 
how how difficult is it to double your enrollment? Book a bigger hall. There you go. You just doubled your income. It just that you would have to be leaving money on the table to do it. Plus, the other thing too is there's way less jobs in pro sport than there is in the medical profession. Right. <laughs> you know what I, mean? yeah, yeah. I like the, the like the like it's like because I I can't remember who I actually had this discussion with, but they were like, yeah, it makes the medical model does make sense, you know, if you were to put that towards you know sport preparation. But it's like the the people who would come out of that model for sports preparation, they're not going into careers with the money that that doctors eventually do end up making and there isn't the same amount of jobs available so like you know it's still though listen we're we're starting a conversation here like it's it's something i i would like like yourself i just want to see the profession evolve to be the best it can be and always striving forward so um and again i'm also an individual who's very much like when when people critique or give a criticism i'm always like give me a solution give me a solution don't be just part of the problem be part of about the pain of labor just give me the fucking baby yeah exactly so i mean at least that's uh, in fairness to yourself i mean you are trying to create change Mm -hmm. through things like the, the the strength coach network so just continue on with the strength coach network here like what what is it like what do members get when they sign up what do you like? So currently, what is what is being offered, and then what are your aspirations for it going forward? So we have two hundred ish hours of video lectures right now. the The criteria for presenting to the members is you must work at the elite level of sports. So like very high level uh, pro, uh, private sector in the pros, college teams like that. It has to be in the real world, I don't want you to just do a research review and tell me like, oh, here's what the papers say, science for sport. I actually want to see what do you do in the real world? What the results, what the case studies, what do they look like? How is, how is this felt in the real world? And it has to be actionable. So we have that, we release a new one every month. Um, we have a discussion forum where, you know, we're in like over 35 countries now. So there are literally coaches every level every sport pretty much we had a guy just he works with olympic climbers that's the first one it had come in the other day um you can bounce ideas ask questions because as you know if you're throwing shit at a wall yeah, and if a big part of this job is throwing shit at a wall i'm going to try this i'm going to try this i'm going to try this sometimes you save yourself a lot of time and effort by bouncing off other people that may have done the same thing get feedback hey think about this think about this think about this um we have that we have uh networking opportunities or like career development opportunities because rightly or wrongly people want to work with people they know like and trust and uh we've had meetups all over the world like people go to australia meet up with coaches we had a welsh guy and a a swiss guy meet up in france like all these uh all these different meetups so establishing connections networking will intro people from all over the world will critique resumes which the nsca just copied six years after i started doing it (laughs) we do job interview preps so it's, it's very, very useful to prepare for an interview when you're speaking to people that interview on a regular basis. Certainly for me, the first several years of my career, I was just going in blind. And, you know, I, I kind of like jokingly tell people like, hey, if you go up against one of our members, just be aware that you're not just going up against them, you're going up against them and all of our membership that helped them. We also have uh, downloadable PDFs because people love downloads. So little cheat sheets you can take in your phone. Uh, That's taken from a book called The Checklist Manifesto by Atol Gawande. We have live members Q&A if you want to get more into the weeds and have a back and forth. So like bigger problems that want to be solved. And then we have also the business of coaching forum because my, my personal belief, again, like reading all these fucking libertarian business books, but having the, uh, the economic independence allows you to think speak and work completely as you see fit and the 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 best position to be in in this field in my opinion is that if you would get fired tomorrow you wouldn't even blink an eye it it makes you a in a dangerous position so that's that's what we're working on so that's that's what we have right now 
what we're working on is trying to serve those different segments of, of the membership. When I started it six years ago, admittedly under the banner of Rugby Strength Coach Community, it was, we had guys that were very much wanting to start out in the industry. And obviously my career has grown. I've, I've developed as a coach since then. And we've had members from the very beginning that started out of, you know, hey, I'm an intern, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, to literally meddling in Tokyo a month ago. So as that, uh, as their careers have grown, we now have, I would say, three distinct segments of the membership, those that aspire to be in the field, those that want to get to the top and those that are at the top. You know, we have a number of like NFL, NBA, MLB, like pro rugby, pro soccer directors. And as you know, there are very, very different sets of problems that you have to deal with at the different stages of your career. And what we're trying to do is provide as much resources as we can to solve each of those individually. Yeah, it's great stuff. And the person who comes to my mind is Terence. So he's gone to UMass. Yeah. Like yeah. I actually met TK back in 2018 and he was still at university. Yeah. And then he got his, his role then with baseball and now he's up at UMass and he's yeah. he's developed so quickly over the last three years. He just stayed at my house for a month, yeah. So he he uh, he was here when he got the job. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, listen, wrapping up here, um, this is a question I wanted to ask you. How has fatherhood changed you? hugely yeah i think it's you know i this is the thing this is not me saying it because i disagree with it but i always i never worked hard at school the academics always came easy so i never really worked hard until i was about 24 25 once i started to get that opportunity at wasps i really started to work and my friends had always said you know oh he works hard he works hard and to me I didn't I don't feel like I work hard but I wish I had in my 20s the sense of urgency that having a kid gives you at 33 I wish I could take that energy and and drive and again I still don't think I work hard now but I certainly work harder after he's arrived than before because now I feel like you know it's not just on me if I don't so massively um it gives you a sense of perspective as well, just because uh, you, if, oh, everyone's got a PR today, but you haven't seen your kid in a week, that's meaningless. And it's very much like in my head, again, there's that path of, I get a Super Bowl ring, but my son hates me or I keep my son close in my life to sacrifice that I'd easily take the second option. So there's a lot of perspective and much, much less in a good way, emotional investment in my career. You know, I, I feel like it just puts, puts things in perspective. You know, it, it, it reminds me of the time when Maladin had to give up his role at, at Port Adelaide. And, you know, me and you are similar ages and, and yeah. so is Maladin's also a similar age. So we, we kind of all grew up in this profession together. And I can remember like reading Maladin stuff and I always knew from speaking with him before he got the Port Adelaide job, he was always telling me, I, you know, I'd love to really get a, a real big sports science job. And then when he got, the, you know, because he'd always say that Port job was his dream job. Yeah. And I can remember, I remember the day like, where he put out on social media, he said, listen, it's with a sad heart. I, I have to leave Port Adelaide, but he's just yeah. like, my son is so much more important. And I can remember, I, I just felt so compelled by, by, you know, I, I, I know sacrifice is the right word because it is your son, but like, there's a lot of people that wouldn't have done what he'd done and give up the job. They would have just said, ah, oh, he'll be fine with his mother and I'll just stay in Australia away from him. But I've, I just felt so compelled to, to write him a message because I knew there was obviously a part of him that, you know, probably obviously it did hurt to have to leave, but he knew he, he had to man up and be there for his yeah. son. And I just thought it was such a commendable act. And I can remember writing to him about it and saying, listen, from just one man to another, and I'm not a father, I don't, I'm not even in a relationship, I've been single all my life. like, But I just felt so compelled by his act of just being a man, like, you know, just, just, you know. you know what it is like one one thing that i wrote down to myself and it, it probably came from eric 
uh, man, that dude. It's like we used, we used to joke with the odd couple. Like he's like the uh, Texas conservative evangelical Christian, and I'm the uh, liberal atheist European. But he and I probably had a conversation about this, and it's like reputation is what other people say about you. Character is what you say about you. And when nobody else is talking about you or looking at you, it's like, what what would you say about you? That's what it comes down to. Absolutely, couldn't agree more. But uh, yeah, I I just I can remember I wrote him a message and it was just basically like from one man to another. I I think what you've what you've done is immense, and to me it's the correct thing. And I know it's hard to do, but I just I just felt compelled to like, you know, not not like it wasn't like oh, I approve your act. It was just like that is that's a, a you know I don't I think the majority of people wouldn't have done what he done and he did. Like you know I, I thought it was just, yeah. and and that's very similar to the feelings and um very similar to the feelings i got when i when i heard about your situation too and that you know right you're like no my son's my priority i don't give a fuck about that stuff now like you know because again a lot of people that isn't they wouldn't have given up their their aspirations or dreams for for their kid you know and it's uh it's a very commendable act to do and just off that here as well um just interested in terms of again you don't have to answer this if you don't want it but no one knew you will because you're an open book in terms of being a parent, like how I'm always interested in asking this to parents because, you know, you are very enlightened. You read well outside the field. Uh, I know that you've interest in human behavior and, and, and human development and psychological development. Just with being a father, like how are you going to approach that with your son in terms of, you know, there's that balance between I want to give my, my kid the, every opportunity that he or she you know could want for but you don't want to like over spoil them that they never go to any university to build a bit of character because i'll give you this just this quick little story and then i'd love to hear your thoughts like neil neil degrasse tyson was on london real and i thought this was just a great story great analogy um he basically was you know brian rose always has that famous question at the end if you could ring the 18 or 20 year old neil degrasse tyson what would you tell him like and he, you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson was like, I wouldn't tell him anything, like, you know, because he's like, I need to go through, like, the adversities and the hardships. And he's like, what people don't seem to understand is, like, you think about all those those foreigners that came to America back in the day, like, from Eastern Europe. And they're like, right. And they slogged and they slogged and they worked and they became entrepreneurs and they opened a business. And then they had a family and they're going to go, I'm going to give my kid everything that I didn't have growing up. They're going to have yeah. the best of the best. And then essentially their kids grow up to be just spoiled brats because they didn't have to go through that work or that grind or that adversity that the parents done. And the parents are like, where did we go wrong? Do you know what I mean? So it's that balance of like being in a position to give your kids opportunity, but also having them to, you know, letting them have to work for it a little bit or letting them go through the adversity to, to build that bit of character. Like what are your thoughts on that after becoming a dad? That quote is like, uh, hard times create strong men strong men create good times good times create weak men weak men create hard times so i again it's a conversation i had yesterday where i think i feel like the older i get the more i appreciate that you should always try to do hard things physically mentally emotionally like in your work or stuff like that it's it's the work that leads to the satisfaction and the growth um so to that extent, you know, I, I do want him to struggle, but it's the, the safety net. I, I do feel like when people know they have a safety net and they, they almost take like way bigger risks and the, the struggle is taken away. If you know, hey, I can fuck this up anytime I want and I'm, I'll get picked up like Donald Trump. Um, if, if I could somehow create an invisible safety net for my kid, whereby, you know, I, I know if the worst was to happen, I could pick him up and help fix it. But for, I wanted to sweat before it, before it happens. <laughs> yeah. And that's the thing, you know, I've, I've decided in my head already, like he has to do something hard physically. He has to learn how to fight just because as an undersized mixed race kid, it's, it's probably going to be required. Um, you know, just things like that. Like, I, I I would want him to work. That's one one thing where I've really probably differed with my parents because you know I'm I'm named after a, a socialist politician, and I feel like generationally, my parents were the last generation where 
you get a job, keep your mouth shut, keep your head down, work for 30 years, you'll be rewarded for it. I do not want that for my kid. I, I want him to build something, as you said, of his own, have ownership and really have that one-to-one relationship between the value that he puts in and the reward that he takes out, which you're inherently robbed of when you become an employee. That's beautiful, man. Really is. Um, listen, uh, just uh, one or two little wrap-up ones. What are you currently reading and what would your top book recommendation be at the moment? Um, I'm really bad right now. What did I start reading? Oh, I read uh, The Power Book by Antonio Scolante. Um, fucking Chris McCormick. Do you know Chris McCormick? I know of Chris McCormick, yes. Chris McCormick, let me tell you. Chris McCormick makes Eric Corum look as atheist as me, right? He and I are from such different ideological parts of the world. He is one of the nicest, most down-to-earth dudes I, I know in the field. And he actually, he's just left coaching to go be a missionary. Like he's going to go start a church in Indiana. And he, uh, it, it touched me. Like he, he sent me a message on Instagram to say, thank you so much for, you know, the influence that you've had on my career, the relationship that we formed, all this kind of stuff. And he didn't have to send me the message. And I thought, wow, that's, you know, it's very, very powerful to me that we can have such different beliefs, but we've been able to build that kind of relationship and he values the relationship and I do as well. Anyway, he, um, he's like, kid, do you want my books? I said, Fuck, yeah, send me, send me over the list. I'll see what books you've got. So he sent me the list. He said, if I'll, I'll pay, I'll give you the books. You pay for the postage. So I like picked all these books and he fucking, he just like snuck it in. <laughs> it's like this pile of books on training. And I've got a book over there about how to be a father figure to young boys. And then I, <laughs> I, I was having an argument about um, coordination the other day. So I pulled out the, the Bosch book on coordination. Fucking open the book and out, out flops a pamphlet on Jesus. So I thought you sneaky fucker. <laughs> I don't, I don't know if he was using it as a bookmark or he's trying to, trying to uh, evangelize to me, but yeah, it, it was in, uh, it was in the book, but I, yeah, I appreciate my comments. So yeah, what have I got there? I've got, um, I'm kind of reading a book on um, the big four by Scott Galloway. So Apple, um, Amazon, Facebook, Google. That's an interesting book. I, I tried to steal quite a bit from big tech, like the bits that I like uh, reading that. And then it's still on my pile of things to do is uh, John Locke's second treatise on uh, government. So like liberty versus authority, all that kind of stuff. A classic, man. I just, you know, and for the listeners, I turn off my, my mic when I'm not talking just so that the audio is crystal clear for the guests. But when I was laughing my bollocks off there with that, that is brilliant. That's the best story I've heard in a while that like he slipped the pamphlet yeah. and over and up Bosch and it's just, just, what the hell? Yeah. Oh my god! The, the irony of uh, a pamphlet about Jesus between the pages of a book by uh, a gay Dutchman. <laughs> I know, I know, it's getting hilarious. That is absolutely brilliant. Um, final one for you: take me for dinner. Five people you can invite, dead or alive. Who would you bring to that dinner, and why? Uh, Christopher Hitchens, Marcus Aurelius. Maybe Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, Muhammad Ali. Oh, just, this is going to be such a sausage party. I'm going to have to invite a female. Um, female that I admire. Maybe we should have someone from entertainment. Dr. Dre. There you go. No females. Dr. Dre. What? Dr. Dre is like my famous or my, my most favorite, like, now I will say this. He, he has a hit track record of uh, abuse of alcohol and beating up women. But like from his impact on the culture and how he's a businessman, he's like one of my favorite celebs. So you can see like on my wall right there, you see him in the background. Oh yeah. Yeah, him and Snoop. That's a, a, a classic picture. Listen, yeah. it's, uh, I just want to say this right now, really appreciate you. I appreciate this conversation. I just wanted to make sure I said that so the listeners... Um... You didn't ask me about the uh, Sprint Timber promotion on Strength Coach Network yet. Oh, listen, Nate, we're not done yet. I was going to say, if you have anything left, you know, I was going to give you the opportunity. Uh, one final thing I, I did meant to say, at the very start when you were saying that you were like, you know, unathletic, weak, and, and not strong, not powerful, in my head I was like, I'm in the same club. Yeah, 
<laughs> so uh, I, I can fully resonate with you. No, listen, uh, again, just so I'm, I'm saying this um, publicly because I want to make this public statement, I really do appreciate everything you've done. I appreciate you. Really appreciate this conversation. And yeah, finally, if there's anything you want to plug, the Strength Coach Network, your social media, where people can connect with you, lay it all out there. Well, I mean, Strength Coach Network for social media. There's none of my face on it, none of my antics. Like I, I basically say, if you want the spicier stuff, rugby strength coach if you if you just want the information strength coach network but yeah all through september if you sign up for annual membership and you use the code sprint in all caps you get 50 bucks off and you go into a prize draw we're giving away uh two grand's worth of stuff from exergio so g flight g sprint g strength you go into prize draw to win that so two two grand fucking hell Mm -hmm. all right kier that's absolutely phenomenal man um Listen, sure, I'll say goodbye to you offline, but for everyone who's listening, as I always say at the end of every show, until next time, take care, be well, and stay strong. Mm-hmm.